This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hi, welcome to Rappaport to the Rescue. I'm Jill Rappaport, and we hope you are all safe and happy and well, getting ready for 4th of July weekend. Oh, wow, this is definitely going to be a different 4th of July than we've ever had in our lives, obviously, because of what we're going through with the pandemic. But I want to make sure that you understand that this is a very special time for your pets in terms of safety. You really have to be very careful with the fireworks coming up. I can't urge people enough to really take precaution. Those of us who have had pets for a while, we know all about this, but there's been so many wonderful new adoptions, people taking animals into their home as fosters. And with the pending fireworks, there are very frightening things that can happen to your animals because You don't know them that long. You haven't been with them that long. You don't know their fears. And if your animals do have a fear of fireworks, I can tell you firsthand, having experienced it, you could lose your animal forever. So we're going to talk about that today with my wonderful partner in crime, Bill Berloni, all the safeties, what to look out for, 4th of July weekend. And coming up, our big special guest today is the one and only Isaac Mizrahi, a quintessential fashion designer whose heart is as big as his fashion line. He is hysterically funny. You're going to love his stories, his history, his background, and most important, his love of animals in need. Stay tuned. Want to know who the latest trendsetters are in Hollywood? How about Irish setters? Find out who's been spotted with Spot, chowing with their chow, and shopping for Gucci with their Poochie. Get the scoop on all the latest celebrity pet patter right here. Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Rappaport to the Rescue. I'm Jill Rappaport, and my guest today really needs no introduction. Oh, heck, let's give him one anyway. He's the one and only Isaac Mizrahi, an American designer, unbelievable TV personality. You've, of course, seen him on Project Runway. He's a QVC star, but what's bigger than his fashion empire is his heart, especially his love of animals. Isaac, I have to tell you, you are truly one in a million, and I say that And I mean it because I've known you for how many years since we did our first Today Show interview back in 1997, would you believe? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Wasn't it that long ago? Yes, I think so. I think it was as many years as that. But you know what? It's amazing how we both managed to be in our 30s still. (laughs) Well, you know, I was reading over some things about you last night. It's so hard to believe that you launched your own brand in 1987. When you hear that year, you can't believe that it's been that long, right? No, I can't believe it. And you know, I still think about that as having been recent. I mean, it it feels like it's a recent date in history and it's really not. You know, I mean, like I talked to kids who were that age, who were born in 1987 or born in 1997, who think of like, you know, 
Moonstruck or Tootsie or something is an old movie. And I go like, is that really? Okay, I guess those are <laughs> old movies, you know. <laughs> it's like, what, like 40 years ago. It's crazy. 30 years ago. It's insane. And you want to talk about going back in time. You launched, you actually did your first line when you were 15 years old? Well, I mean, that was when I was in high school. Yeah. I had a partner called Sarah and I made clothes and, you know, we made samples and we sold them to different people. We sold them to a store called Sharivari, which I don't think is there anymore. Sadly, Sharivari has gone. We sold them to a store called Off Broadway, which was this kind of hilarious little store like (laughs) 72nd Street on the West Side. I forgot there were a few stores who carried our clothes and it was hilarious. I mean, you know, we did these funny little collections, but I remember the boldest thing about doing that was buying the fabrics because I remember poring over Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and all those magazines and seeing ads for European, like Italian textile houses, like Brunyaska and a few different places. And I remember like calling up directory assistance, which in those days was such a great thing to do. You just called 411. <laughs> yeah. That's what the expression, I need the 411, right? Like <laughs> and they had the phone numbers for these showrooms. And I went up to these showrooms and I ordered these fabrics, these exquisite fabrics, you know, that's always been a real passion of mine is textiles. I really like textiles. Well, you know, besides your talent, obviously somebody saw that they realized your talent, you were discovered back then, but this personality of yours, it's one thing to have the talent, the creative juices, but you are a true personality. People adore you, you're hilarious, and you have emerged into such a name, not only for your fashion empire, but because of who you are. And because of that, you've been on every show known to man, of course, Project Runway, you're a QVC star. I think a lot of it today, especially Isaac, personality really does make such a difference. You can be as talented as can be, wonderful designs, but having that extra oomph really makes a difference, right? Well, I think so, yes. But I do think it should be addressed because, you know, like more and more, I am performing on stage. I'm doing stand-up and I'm doing, I'm singing, which sounds crazy, but, you know, I perform at (laughs) Carlisle every year. I do like two or three weeks at the Carlisle and I do gigs and theaters across the country. And it's really a funny, great thing that has been kind of growing in its place in my life. It's sort of become the center of my life, performing and writing and performing stuff I write. And I will say this, like, I do think that having a personality, if you're a designer, you know, it really helps because like, look at Karl Lagerfeld, for instance, you know, Karl did what he did. And then he had that huge personality. And I think that's what really sort of made him such an incredible presence in the world of design all those years, you know, but I do think the talent has to be there. It's, you know, like a lot of times people think that it's about a trick or personality or something like that, but you know, it really isn't. I think it helps, but if you don't have the knowledge, you know, it's like, I think that design really starts with, you need a lot of, you need to put in a lot of hours learning about you know, construction, but the construction of textiles, the knitting of things, you know, knitting is not easy. Tailoring is basically impossible. You know, I used to do all that stuff. And I just actually like, when I think about it, like the hair on the back of my neck stands up because I go like, oh, you know, it's, it's such an impossible thing. And by the way, like working on stage requires a great deal of 
knowledge and a great deal of experience. And, and, you know, like, I feel like I've had that over the past decades of my life, you know, starting from when I was a kid, I made these puppet shows and I did like female impersonations starting at the age of like 11 or something like that. And then I went to performing arts high school, you know, where I was a drama major and I was in a few movies and stuff. And then I kind of decided that I wasn't, I'm not really like leading man material. Oh, come yeah. on. I think no, you're since... definitely leading man. <laughs> well, <laughs> leading man in like La Cage au Fall or something. <laughs> like leading man in some character-y kind of leading role. Yes, for sure. But I'm not, you know, I'm not Richard Gere. You know, I'm not Pacino or something, right? And so like at, when I was a kid, like those were the people I was looking at going, mm, yeah. And also at performing arts high school, like you had to see these people that I went to school with. They were gorgeous and rake thin and, you know, gorgeous. And I was not gorgeous. And so I thought maybe I should back out of this, you know. And then finally, like, you know, I started my company and I did all that. And then in 1998, I started writing this one person show, which I worked on and worked on. And finally, by 2000, it was on Off-Broadway for a year. And that was the greatest time of my life ever you know, that when that show was running. So, well, and you know, when I first interviewed you back in the nineties, you probably don't remember this. I was laughing so hard. I felt like I was going to have an asthma attack. You were so funny. And I remember saying to you back then, Oh, can't we do a show together, Isaac? I want to do a talk show with you. Yes, I always was so blown away by your personality because, you know, you possess all these talents, but it's the personality and more than the personality, the warmth. You've never changed. You've always maintained the sweet, kind of almost a little bit insecure, kind of like, really, is that me? Am I that good? And I think that's so much of what your appeal is about. You don't have a cocky attitude or an ego. I mean, you know, thank you. I have to say, you know, insecurity is a very big part, I think, of art. You know, most of my friends are artists, right? And it's funny because even as no matter how like tiny and meek and adorable they are, they still have creative egos. You know, they still have to feel like they're good enough to kind of like get out of bed and put a pen to a page or, you know, put a paintbrush to a canvas or something, you know? And so I think like creative ego, like kind of forces you to overcome this kind of insecurity, you know? And in my case, I think the insecurity was what I worry about so much are kids that are insecure or that are bullied or something like that, who aren't resilient and who aren't able to buoy, you know, back up to the surface, you know, but gosh, I don't know what it was that I learned maybe from my mom or something, or just, I came from another planet where, you know, this kind of, you know, resilience was part of the package, but I was always able to kind of like, you know, look at people and go, no, they're wrong. I'm right. I know the truth, you know? And so like, yeah, I mean, I think that resilience and creative ego are the things that make you overcome security, but even more than insecurity, it's like inertia, you know, yes. like, I think as an artist, you have this lazy, t- like, I know that if I didn't push myself all the time, I would be in bed all the time, you know, I would <laughs> in bed with TV on eating ice cream or something. <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? But, yeah. you know, it's interesting because talk about challenging yourself emotionally, getting up on stage, doing stand-up or trying. Oh, that is, I can't even relate to that. What is that like? You know, it is the scariest. I mean, I wrote a book called, I wrote a memoir about two years ago and it was great and it was really well received. It was so well 
reviewed and it was actually a New York Times bestseller, although that was the best thing in the world. But it was really about my life as a kid and how I was sort of in the wrong, like parochial, the wrong kind of environment and how I kind of made it to performing arts high school and that really opened my eyes and then sort of, you know, going into design and doing that. And then at the end of the book, the last chapter is a description of what it's like for me when I work at the Carlisle, right? Because that's really the prototypical room for me. I work in a lot of rooms, but that's the great room, you know? And like, it's a really detailed description of the kind of just almost like a near-death experience (laughs) before. I mean, you have to get, I mean, how because I have to say, like, you just, you're standing in front of these people and, you know, they're there to love you, but no matter how much you kind of like, no matter how much you know that, you know, you're still kind of facing a firing squad. And then, yes. by the way, one thing I know is that entering, you know, entering on stage is the most important moment. If you don't enter, they're not going to save you, right? You have to look at them and just be like relaxed and, you know. And so the thing is, it's like in a lot of cases, you're faking it till you make it, you know, it's like the minute you walk out there, you go, oh, they do love me, you know, so, and you just, you're able to proceed. But seconds before, and as you're walking out, your tendency is to like start convulsing and hyperventilating, right? Hyperventilating. And it's a matter of like breathing. And, you know, there are teachers, I remember in, in acting school, teachers would give you these long exercises to calm down these long procedures, which are it doesn't matter. You can do that. And then seconds before you walk out, you go like, what the hell? Oh my <laughs> And you know what? For our listeners around the country, around the world, the Carlisle is one of the most exclusive. It's considered the creme de la creme for a performer to be asked to be performing there. It's really quite special. And even though it's smaller and intimate, it's right. as terrifying as Madison Square Garden because oh, yeah. you have these people like one level below you, but it's so intimate, but you feel every sound, you hear every breath. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Also, it's such a tiny room, but every single position in that room is filled with somebody in New York City or in the entertainment business or in a business or something. And it's a really expensive venue. It's like you pay right. a money to go to the Carlisle. So, I mean, the entertainment has to meet the level, you know? One thing you do have going for you is that pretty much everybody has had a drink at that point. <laughs> That's they're, they're a little tipsy. <laughs> a little wee bit tipsy, yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, I used to have this thing about not drinking before I went on, you know. I didn't for years and years and years. Like, and by the way, if I were working on Broadway or if I were working as an actor, there's no way you can drink and do that. But this particular idea of showing up and being there in a room for an audience, and by the way, I'm not a big drinker, but I now <laughs> do imbibe just a tiny bit because I noticed the band, my band, Every one of them has like a major scotch and water before they, or like a big vodka tonic before they go out. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to have a little road day spritzer. And oh, listen to that. Who's that? No, no, that one of my six dogs. Yes, I have many dogs in the background and they just heard a little sound. They got excited. That's a very- it's Isaac. It's your fan club, Isaac. They're well, barking for way, you. There's a, beautiful, a bass, kind of a beautiful dog sound. That's Scout. Yes, he's got the deep. Yes. Beautiful, deep voice. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. So what were you saying? Well, I was just saying that, you know, I I will have like a rosé. Oh. (laughs) Scout, Scout, Isaac's talking. I think Scout is saying that it's cocktail hour somewhere. I think that's what he's saying. You know, I didn't realize I had heard you were a singer. 
I didn't realize that you actually got up at the Carlisle and sang. I would be remiss not to ask for just a little bit of a oh, well, anything you can. I know you haven't had a drink, but is there anything you want to belt out? Give us a little. I, uh, I'm not warmed up, and I don't have an accompanist. I have a policy that I don't like to sing without an accompanist, but I can okay. direct you to my Instagram page, which is I am Isaac Mizrahi, where we have a few really beautiful things that we've done. You know, in quarantine with the band, where everyone plays their own part and then someone mixes it, and they're really good. I mean, there's few like three or four songs that we've done and we're doing another one this week i think and so, so i i'm so amazed well so you're obviously a great singer who would you compare yourself to are you a sinatra type no, i mean no, no. I what mean, what type who, who would you compare yourself to you know i have to say like i can carry a tune but i think more than that i feel like more than a singer i like to think of myself as a musician you know and i'm not Sinatra. I'm not Christina Aguilera. I mean, I'm not like this person who can really belt it out. You know, I'm not Ariana Grande. Sadly, I'm not Ariana Grande. <laughs> I love her. But you see what I mean? And I'm also not, you know, Elaine Stritch, who was a great raconteuse. You know what I mean? Like, I am more of a raconteur than I am like a major, major singer, but I can sing. I mean, I urge you to go to my Instagram page. I mean, that's- I'm doing it, and all our listeners are going to do it. You know, Isaac, when I think about you, And just trying to imagine you as a young boy, take yourself back then, fast forward to now, fashion empire, QVC star, TV personality. You have a backup band. You're at the Carlisle. You're Uh a musician. You're a performer. Can you even believe what your life has transpired into, what you have created for yourself? I have to say, wait, now I'm going to turn it around on you, turn the camera on you. Okay. You're also like a really accomplished name in the business. I mean, like I've known you for a really long time as a big success in your chosen field. Now you wake up every day. What do you say to yourself? Like, hooray, Jill, I'm so great. Like, I'm going to just be this fabulous person today. I don't think so. Right. Well, thank you so much, but no, but you understand what I'm trying to say to you, darling. It doesn't matter. Like you wake up every day, every night in the middle of the night and you think like, I'm crazy. What have I done with my life? Where did I go wrong? (laughs) I did everything wrong. You know, I mean that that's not a joke. I mean that. And it takes you like every bit of your whatever, your self-delusion or your honesty or something to like come to the fact that, you know, yeah, you've kind of done something with you. They're okay. You know, like seriously, it is that. I mean, well, I think so much of it, talent aside, I mean, you have got multi layers of talent and look at all of the things you've created in your life aside from fashion. But the one thing that has always struck me, and I said this in the beginning of the show, is your heart. And what some people, some people, anyone close to you knows this about you, but some people may not know, is your love of animals, the devotion and your commitment to animals. First of all, I loved you before, but when I learned that about you, we were definitely kindred souls forever. Tell me about your animals and why animals mean so much to you. Well, you know, I mean... I don't know what it was that drew me to dogs, really. It's dogs. I love cats. I love mice. I love horses. I mean, I like animals, but dogs really, there are very few dogs I don't like. You know, like I like some children. I like some people. I like (laughs) some people, but I love most dogs. It's hilarious. It doesn't matter what they look like or the size or something. I just love them. And I don't know. I mean, I can't attribute that to anything. I can only, you know, attribute it to like the fact that 
it's a natural affinity, right? And I've, I've always wanted a dog. When we were little, we had a big apricot poodle, a big sort of standard poodle named Pom Pom. And he was evil. He hated kids. He didn't like kids. And he was very mean to us. And eventually he like was, had to be taken out of the house, which was really sad. But he actually found a really good home. And they proved that to me because I was hysterical. Even though I didn't like Pom-Pom, I was hysterical because I thought, where is this poor? But he went to this really great, he went to live on a farm, which was really, I mean it. Like that sounds like a joke, but it was true. Anyway, growing up, I always wanted a dog. And finally, when I did that show off-Broadway, in 2000, right? It was coming to an end. It was ending. And by 2001, I was looking at this abyss, you know, it had been playing for a year. And like, I was looking at this crazy chasm in my life thinking like, what am I going to feel like every waking moment of my life was working on that show. And then I thought, you know, I've always wanted a dog. And I have this wonderful friend called Kitty Hawks. Do you know Kitty by some chance? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, so Kitty was like, yeah, we're going to take you. So she took me around to all these shelters and we spent a minute like looking at dogs. It came close in a couple of cases. It never happened. And it was because it just didn't feel right. And she kept saying, nope, that's not it. That's not it. Nope, 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 nope. You know, and she, she was such a great help, you know? And then one day she called and said, you know, you got to get to this cocktail for this shelter tonight. And it was right before Christmas in 2000, right? And she said, get there because like every cute dog in the world is going to be at this cocktail and you'll have a great selection. So I went and she didn't show me. She she said, I have your dog. I have your dog. Just wait right here. And she came out with Harry, this guy, Harry. <laughs> and I was like, hey, Kitty, you're right. That's my dog. I don't know what tells me that's my. And we literally, the next day, I went back to the shelter and picked him up and we walked back home from 46th Street to 12th Street. And we were just best. We were like instantly like the best buddies you could possibly. I got him in 2000. He's deceased now since 2016, but he lived 16 like really good years. And in 2016, that summer, because we were so bereft, in the meantime, we had gotten this other dog called Dean, who's asleep at my feet, who's by now, I'd say, 14 years old or 15 years old. And anyway, at that point in 2016, my husband found this picture of a dog on Petfinder, I guess, who was from Puerto Rico. You know, she was a Sato dog. And we actually like, he was like, and I was like, yep, get her. I mean, she, if we could get her, that would be incredible. And she came over and she's been the centerpiece of like the happiness in this house. I mean, she's such a doll. Her name is Kitty. Speaking of Kitty Hawks, <laughs> after Kitty Hawks. Also, her name was Kita when she came to me, Kita. And I didn't understand that name and I didn't like it. And I was like, excuse me? No, Kitty is her name, right? But Kitty. you know what's amazing? You talk about this dog that you had, this that was a little meme when you were a child. Back then, I don't think people really understood about adoption, about shelters. No. And yet you have made it your mission now, not only to only go to rescue and adoption and shelters, you are so involved with the ASPCA. You received one of the most prestigious awards from them this yes. last year. And you obviously from ARF, I was at that dinner where you were honored at the Animal Rescue Fund in the Hamptons. People have recognized your work and your heart and soul for animals in need, which is you so know, wonderful. What you're doing, I, I wish I could do more is what I can say. I feel like those awards are you know, meant for somebody else because I mean, I give a little money. I don't give as much money as, you know, I wish I could give more money, you know, because I feel like money is such a good thing, right? To get facilities, to get people to help, etc. 
And I don't like, I don't walk dogs. I mean, I wish I tried, you know, occasionally I try to go to ARF and help and walk a dog, but you know, I mean, like, I don't know why I got an award. I really don't know why I think, you know, I mean, I speak about them. I try to do as many like appearances or interviews, but I would do so much more if I could. And I plan to, I plan to make that kind of like a feature, you know, of my life in the future. And I'm not exactly sure when that's going to be. I'll know more when this whole crazy quarantine thing is, is kind of final. Well, and, and let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, thank goodness for your husband, but tell me about the comfort that your rescue pets have given you during this quarantine. Darling, are you kidding? My husband, he's been sheltering more in New York City than he has been in Bridgehampton. I'm in Bridgehampton literally since the middle of March. I've been in the city for like maybe three days or something like that just to do things and come right back. Whereas he is like living in that in our apartment on 12th Street mostly. And he comes here occasionally to like check in and say, hey, I'm your husband. I love you. Like, nice to see you. Is that because you're trying to preserve the marriage? <laughs> I, you know, I, honestly, I think it's because he's trying to preserve. You know, at the beginning, I was like, he's, we were together for the first like three or four weeks of the quarantine, like four months. And he was like, no, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I have to go back. And I was like, you're great. What? You actually was walking out the door, you know? And then I got into it and I was like, well, this is the greatest thing in the world because he's sheltering there. I'm sheltering here. I have the dogs with me and I cannot tell you. And by the way, they haven't been to the city since March. And I wonder what that's going to be like. I think, you know, I think Kitty loves being walked on a leash, which is an hilarious thing, you know? I don't think Dean minds anymore. I think Dean really likes being here, but he doesn't really get much out of being here anymore. He used to love to run after squirrels and stuff, but he's so old now. I don't think he likes the car drive back and forth as much, but I think he'd be okay. And I think Kitty might like it in this city because she loves being walked on a leash. Okay. But you know what's so funny? Obviously, we're hearing all these things with couples in quarantine. I think you've got it down, Isaac. You've got the right I think situation going here for maintaining a perfect relationship. I have to tell you, I think it's Arnold Germer, my husband. I think he knew something, you know, I was, <laughs> it. I was like, if we're not together, how could we not be together at this point? I mean, you know, but we were together for the first month and then he came back and forth and now he's there and I'm not exactly sure when he's going to come here and it's fine. You know, <laughs> it's fine with you, but I haven't your pets given you great solace and comfort is there anything better than being with them let's be honest no no you know i've been a hamptons person since the 80s since i'm in my 20s right and i always like in the beginning i sort of rented a house with these two friends of mine for years we were always in this house or in a different house or a third house and then finally i bought this place i don't even know when like in the 90s or something right, right. and i redid it in the early 2000s but I never, until I got Harry in 2000, until I got Harry, I could never come here by myself. I always had to be with like a bunch of friends or I couldn't come. I mean, I could never stay out here by myself. Never. Maybe one night a year I would stay here by myself, you know. But after I got Harry, I was here a lot. And, it's, and I actually was pulled to Bridgehampton because of him. You know, he preferred it here. He liked it so much better here. And Kitty and Dean really prefer it here, you know. And so I feel like not only are they responsible for and also by the way by the way here's another incentive for people to give in to their you know sort of love for dogs when i i got harry right in 2000 around christmas and on june 21st 2001 so that's what like maybe six months later right i was walking harry 
And I met Arnold. I met my husband while I was walking Harry. You see that? See that? Dogs were the matchmakers. Dogs are matchmakers. I don't know what it is, but I met Arnold. We were like walking in opposite directions on Fifth Avenue and 11th Street. And we looked at each other, you know, those things where you make eye contact and you're like that. Okay, well that, and it just, and that was it. Like we met and that was it. That is so wonderful. And I love my dogs because they basically told me what guys to stay away from. So they (laughs) (laughs) they're really good at that. Oh yeah. I had one dog, Isaac, you'll laugh. His, he was Hampton. His name was Hampton. He lived till 20 years old and he would not let anyone near my bed. I said, who needs birth control? No one was getting up in my room. No one was in my bed. I mean, these dogs know, they know who's good for you and who's not, right? Oh, anybody trying to get in your bed, they're not going to like. I mean, <laughs> when, I first, when I first met Arnold, anytime he came near my bed, Harry would freak out. And one time he bit Arnold for coming to bed. <laughs> And it was so funny because what made me know that I loved Arnold was that he immediately started laughing. It was like he was, he actually broke the skin. He was like bleeding and Arnold was screaming, laughing because it was so funny. <laughs> it was just so damn funny. And you know, someone who isn't laughing at that, a person who doesn't laugh at that, you go, mm, mm, not for you, right? But it's amazing because you have devoted a lot of time, considering how little time you have with all of the gigs you've got going. You've done so much amazing work for the ASPCA. I mean, I've seen you be the master of ceremonies, not only an award recipient, but you've been on stage. You've helped them so much. And it's so great that they have you as a voice, a face to help spread the message, right? Yes. I don't, you see, maybe because it's such an ingrained part of my happiness, you know, and because it takes absolutely no effort to talk about that because I love it so much and I could talk for hours about dogs, you know, but maybe because of that, I don't understand why awards are even necessary, you know? I mean, I have to say, like, I'm not really the most, I mean, I used to work on red carpets. I used to do like at the Oscars and the Golden Globes, etc. you know, I used to do like interviews, like talking head interviews for a number of years. And I never liked the ceremonies. I never liked the shows, like the Oscars. I just don't like, I don't know why. I just don't feel like people deserve awards for doing the thing that they like the best or something. You know, it's like, it's a weird thing. It's, you're getting an award so that what? So that, so that everybody will know that it's a good picture and to go see it or something. But usually, <laughs> right. usually the best pictures aren't even nominated or something. That's right. Know? It's like, I don't, never understood the award thing. Especially like, you know, I've gotten a lot of CFDA awards. I've gotten this award from the, you know, a few different. And that's the Council of Fashion Designer Award. That's very prestigious. I think, did you receive four? Did I read that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the point is that I never understood that because it's just not, I don't never understood awards, you know. Well, you're unusual because there's so many people out there that hang their hat on awards. That's all they really care about. And and to them, it justifies their existence. You know, they, they really need it. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. I don't know. To me, you see, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's just things you are born knowing, like, you know, that you love dogs you know that you like, you know, ice cream or something. You know that you don't care about awards, you know. The other thing I know is that, like, I like to wear black because I always wear, and it's not like I don't try. I buy pink sweaters. I buy stuff, but I <laughs> always wear black. You know what I mean? So it's like just who I am. I can't fight it, you know. Now, whose clothes do you wear? All my own clothes. I know the Only like, your own. Well, here's the thing that's so crazy. All of my T-shirts, all of my 
polo shirts, all of my dress shirts, all of my suit. Well, my suits are made by different wonderful tailors, you know. Okay. But my day clothes, you know, the t-shirts and the polo shirts and the pants that I wear are all made from my old patterns when I was making clothes for men. And they're just kind of adapted year to year to year. And I, you know, I get like 25 black t-shirts and, you know, every two years and, you know, it's a crazy thing. And someone makes them and they're a fortune because <laughs> the fabric is a fortune to get it from Italy. And then, you know, cause it's a small, tiny little lot that has to be put through a special factor. I mean, it's a crazy. Why don't you do a men's line again? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Too much to take on. Yes, it's really hard. You know, I, I just, this is what I love about you. I mean, you're just, you're so down to earth and you're so grateful for everything you've gotten. And it's amazing because talk about having your fingers in a lot of pies. You're doing a million things right now. Is there anything else that you would like to tackle that you wish you dreamt of doing that you said, well, I'm going to do it soon? I got to tell you something, you know, we should talk about this because like in the face of what's going on between the COVID thing and the racial equality movement, which is the foot, which is the greatest thing. I mean, like who thought that in our lifetimes we would see something this beautiful? I mean, it's, it's hard and it's one day at a time, but we know that the end result of this is going to be incredible. I know that. I know that deeply, you know, but in the face of all of that change, you say to yourself, like, I'm grateful, right? And then other days you wake up and you go, but what about my career? What about blah, blah? What about my diet? And what you go like, really? Who the hell cares? You know, I mean it like, because all this stuff that's going on in the world right now is so much more important to think about, you know? And so you talk about like gratitude, right? Like gratitude, darling. Um, that's a very, very big word right now. A very big word, such a big word. And that's really what you want to be all about right now at this time in your life. Yeah, yeah. You have to fight the instincts to care if your career is stalled or something, or if you're like, you know, five pounds overweight or 10 pounds overweight. It doesn't matter, you know? It's like, I'm embarrassed to feel those things right now, you know? Well, I have to tell you, Isaac, you never disappoint. I really adore you. You just are so true blue. You are the real deal. And I love your compassion for all things animals and your talent and your abilities, but just your heart. You know, the fact that you have maintained the person that I interviewed back in the 90s, every time I see you, you're always the same. You've got a big smile on your face and you're inquisitive. You ask people about their lives. You care about others might care a little bit more about animals, which is why I love you more. <laughs> but I am so happy that you are part of this show today. I think that your insight into things is really going to help people and really make people understand what's important right now. Well, thank you so much, Jill. And I'm going to end on a light note. I'm going to end on a very light note. Okay. Your hair looks so good right now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Really good. Like, there's <laughs> one person I know in quarantine whose hair looks great. Oh, I love you. And of course, I did it myself. Thank it's amazing. You. <laughs> you have a future, my dear. You have a future. Forget the whole interview. Just let's yes, run that sound bite over and over again. My hair looks good. Who cares? That's all that matters. Exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Isaac. I adore you. And I'm right up the road in Watermill. So maybe I have my horses, my dogs, my farm. Maybe you'll come over six feet away with a mask and we can give each other a virtual hug from across the sand ring. Okay. I would absolutely love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And again, do you want to plug anything you want? Any websites you'd like people to go to? Feel free. 
plug well, away. Can, uh, maybe go to my Instagram. The only thing I think is my Instagram page, which is I am Isaac Mizrahi. Okay, great. And uh, we cannot wait to hear how what a wonderful singer you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you so much. Give my love to Arnold and all the doggies. Big kiss, Isaac. Thank you. Kiss to you, too. And stay safe. You, too. We wear fur, and we're damn proud of it. What? And our four legs. And our tail. And we go to the bathroom outside. Well, we may not be too proud of that. (laughs) Sniff around, then mark your spot right here. Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Rappaport to the Rescue. I'm Jill Rappaport. Now, our regular favorite segment in the show, I like to call it the Jill Bill Thrill. Jill and Bill. I'm here with Bill Berloni, Broadway trainer extraordinaire who takes rescue animals and makes some superstars on the stage. Hey, Bill, how you doing? I'm fine, Jill. How are you? I'm getting ready for a big 4th of July weekend, and I teased at the top of the show that this is a very frightening time for pet owners and especially these animals, because a lot of us are new pet owners due to the yep. quarantine and due to the what's going on with the epidemic. And this is really something that people need to be aware of if they've just taken in these animals. When these fireworks go off, so can the animals. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is why I chose to do my interview outside today, um, you know, because I'm fortunate enough to live in the country. But, you know, people think, oh, well, it's nice and quiet in the country. But out here, it's so quiet that one firecracker really stands out. So whether you're in the city or out in the country, you know, any one of those sounds is going to set off your dog, you know, but it's tied into their survival instinct. That's what people have to understand. You know, animals are smart. When there's a thunderstorm coming, they get out of the way. What do humans do? We go stand outside and look at it. We follow (laughs) tornadoes, you know, but animals sense danger coming and it's their instinct to protect themselves right? So they're so much smarter. So dogs who are usually afraid of fireworks are also afraid of thunder. And for them, it's like PTSD. It's a trauma, you know, because they really feel like the world is coming to an end and they don't know how to deal with it. They're trapped in a house or they can't get away. There's no place to hide. Whereas in the wild, they would go find a nice quiet cave to hang out in. So our dogs who have those symptoms, we really have to care for as if it's a medical condition. All right. Well, a lot um, of us might not know, especially if you're a new adopter mm-hmm. or a new foster, you might not know if your animal has that issue until these fireworks start to go off for this big right. holiday weekend. What do you advise people to do? What steps should we take to protect our animals so that we don't have a problem? Well, the first thing you know, obviously, uh, if we know the fireworks are happening on a certain day, what I do with my dogs is um, turn the air conditioner on close the windows, put blankets or cover the windows so that they don't see the flash and then play a radio or a television very loud and drown out the sound. So basically give them a cave within your home where we're keeping the sound out. You know, I play Broadway music for my dogs. (laughs) Of course. Of course. (laughs) So, you know, create a cave for them, but it really has to be soundproof and lightproof. That's if we know that a storm is coming or the 4th of July is coming. But in these incidents where recently in the country, fireworks have been going off day and night, 
you know, and there's, it's really upsetting for humans. They've been um, doing stories on the news about this that all of a sudden it's 4th of July all year long. All year long. I mean, forget the danger that poses to us, but for our animals, it is completely unnerving. And if your dog has that trauma, the only thing you could do is go to your vet. There are many medications which help them learn that they're not going to be harmed. Okay. We're not tranquilizing our dogs. We're not putting them to sleep. What we're doing is we're giving them, you know, a medication which helps calm their nerves. So instead of- Sort of like our glass of wine. Exactly. Okay. So instead of fireworks, you know, and trying to bring them down, what you do is you give them this medication and there's many types. Your vet will, will prescribe it and they start to just chill out and then they hear the sound and they go, oh- I'm chill now, you know, and they start, so they start associating the sound and being chill, but you have to do it per your vet's orders. And just like any other training regime, you've got to do it really consistently because you miss one thunderstorm, you miss one firework and they, and you set them back. You know, in uh, past years, two of my rescue dogs came to me after 4th of July weekend. Of course we went everywhere. We put posters up. Is this your dog? We went on the radio, local vet clinics, and nobody claimed my beautiful Hampton who lived till 20 years old, but it was right after 4th of July and another dog that I had in the same situation. And I'll never forget thinking to myself, wow, look at all of these animals that all of a sudden after 4th of July weekend, the shelters are inundated and they will tell you that so many animals end up being found on the road or heaven forbid worse after 4th of July weekend or anytime there's firework activity. So what I have found, especially if you know there's going to be fireworks at night, if you're a person that normally lets your dog out in the backyard, Mm -hmm. I think during that time, put them on a leash. You know, if you have to, if they have to do their business, make sure they're on a leash and you never take your eyes off them. You hold them tight because that sound, they could bolt. And I've also found, you mentioned like a safe haven. If people have a basement, that Mm -hmm. will act in the same way. Right, Bill? Exactly. In actuality, what dogs look for are places close to the ground so that if there's a lightning strike, they're grounded. The area is grounded. So They'll hide behind pipes. People are like, why do they hide in the bathtub? Why do they hide behind the toilet? Because the pipes are grounded, you know, so they know naturally to go someplace like the basement that, again, if there's a lightning strike, that will keep them safe. But the the other thing about running away, Jill, and we've got to push this, microchip your dog, please. We have the technology now where no dog should get lost because we can very simply with one little shot, you know, put a microchip in and find the owners. So please, I want our listeners to really think about that, especially with dogs who are afraid of fireworks or thunder. You know, and I had another dog, my beautiful Shiner. He was so terrified of thunder. There wasn't a level low enough to give him comfort. And he would claw, claw, claw and scratch at walls, take out sheetrock. I mean, he was beyond panicked. And you know, again, any safe medication, because think about it, the stress on them not to have something to help them is worse for their health than something that can help them calm down. Do you recommend something like a Thunder shirt also, like where they're being swaddled? Well, again, there are many products, Thunder shirts, hormone treatments, you know, scents, that sort of stuff. And that's okay for the mild cases, you know, somebody who's just a little jittery. But for a dog who's really traumatized, who really, like you said, is digging and that sort of stuff, it doesn't really help because their mind is in flight mode. That's what it is. You know, fight or flight. They're in flight mode and there's nothing we can do to really calm them down. Either wait it out or like I like to do is relieve that tension. Get them on some medication from your vet. Well, Bill, again, as always, fantastic tips. You know, this is very unusual time because there's going to be so many new pet owners that are dealing with this for the first time. If they haven't experienced 
you know, the periodic fireworks going off now, but especially coming up with this big holiday weekend, it's going to be major. So this is great advice for all of the wonderful new pet owners who have opened up their hearts and homes, whether they're fostering or they've adopted. Thank you again. Great seeing you. Until next week, I'm Jill Rappaport, and thanks for tuning in. And again, stay safe and have a positive attitude. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.